Welcome to Sweat the Details. This is Keith Davis. I'm here with my partner, Jim Duncan from Nest Realty, and we are joined again by Rob Hahn. If you are a regular listener, a couple of weeks ago, you would have heard an episode where Rob and Jim and I spent probably far too long talking about uh, some of the issues surrounding fair housing and current market um, issues that are, are going on. And we came up with several topics that we said we promised Rob we would get him back on the air, and we wanted to do that today. Um, started with kind of school districting and fair housing and um, some of the tweets that have been coming out of Washington as of late. Uh, but yesterday, uh, we're recording this on a, on a Thursday afternoon, and yesterday there was an article that came out in Inman News that I thought we would start with, Rob, if that's good with you. Um, it is. That related to a uh, issue of a, of a neighborhood that had racial covenants placed on it when the subdivision occurred decades ago. Um, and in this uh, article, the, the blame, if I will, uh, is being placed on a bank, a national bank that still exists today, and a real estate firm that still exists today, and the developer who is still in business today. And uh, it is calling for reparations to be paid to the black homeowners that were not allowed to live in that neighborhood because the um, those homeowners would have had an opportunity at price appreciation that they were blocked out from. And this is is pretty common throughout the U.S. during the the middle part of our last century. And um, just kind of wanted to to start with this question of reparations. And and you've read the article, Jim's yeah. read the article, and we've all kind of looked at it. And just kind of wanted to give a thought to, you know, this is this is all based on the color of law and Richard Rothstein's work. In fact, he was instrumental in this in this one um, one claim that's now coming up. And just kind of. Want to start a conversation of thoughts on reparations of to house homeowners who never had the opportunity uh, to own a house? So uh, first of all, guys, great to see y'all. Uh, thanks for inviting me back. I, I actually can't believe you did. Um, I'm, I'm shocked <laughs> that you want me <laughs> back, <laughs> but happy to be. Um, and uh, as I was kind of mentioning during the pre-show, like, okay, so we're going to get into the white guilt hour. Um, and I suppose in real estate, I'm one of the very few who suffer who don't suffer from that issue, seeing as <laughs> I'm an Asian immigrant, so I don't have that problem. <laughs> All right, but more seriously, okay, listen, as far as the article goes, you know, it, it, first of all, Rothstein, I think, has done, you know, some great scholarship, right? He's the guy that actually wrote Color of Law. In terms of his idea, the, it's like, okay, I mean, do whatever you want, because what, what he did that I don't mind is he called for a private initiative, right? right. It's not like we need reparations, the government should take a bunch of money from these companies, and he didn't do that. He said these companies ought to do that. Yeah. And just to clarify for listeners, you you know, for anybody that's going to read this article, it's not the it's not the national brokerage, you know, that's still in business. They acquired the original brokerage. Right. Same okay. thing with the national bank; they acquired the original racist bank, right? But it's, so it's, it's a, right. Yeah. They've they've acquired the assets and, and yeah. have have yeah. taken on the guilt of that of that yeah. of that bank. As far as the developer, I mean, there's a quote like right from the guy's grandson, right? Yeah. And listen, I mean. This was a different time. I think all of us, well, not me, but you guys might have grandparents <laughs> or, you know, people in your family who were, you know, held different views at a different time, right? So I appreciate that he's saying, listen, I mean, he came out straight up said this was categorically, uh, categorically wrong. You know, it's racist. <laughs> I mean, he admitted it. So, you know, good for, good for him from that standpoint. I think the real issue is this. And if you read the article, he talks about it, right? 
the homes we're talking about, which is in San Mateo, I mean, we're talking like one of the most expensive areas in the world, right, in terms of housing prices. You could set up whatever fund you want, right? Fact of the matter is, like these homes are, I think, I think the article said their, their average price is 1.4 million. Yeah. Right. And, you know, in the article, it mentions like uh, these grants that were, you know, provided where the bank is providing like $30,000 to families, you know, who are low income families. I'm like, 30,000 doesn't get you anywhere when the house is 1.4 million. Do you know what I mean? Right. So if the idea is we need to somehow integrate, somehow do it with the legacy of this racism back in the whatever, right? When these things were done, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever it was, 30 grand ain't going to cut it, right? Just the down payment is going to be $280,000. So are we doing that, right? Well, but I think, Robert, you know, everything that you know what we read in in color of law and what we're talking about yeah. and and i'm not i'm not suggesting that a thirty thousand dollar reparation is is gonna you know close the gap here what we're talking about is the fact that generations of african americans have not had the ability to have uh financial gains in you know, uh, in no generational wealth Absolutely. accumulation and that that is Absolutely. based on our racial covenants that we put on on properties back Absolutely. decades ago Absolutely. And the, the, all I'm suggesting is, and I think this article actually really points to sort of uh, the, the real difficulty here, right? Because at the end of it, Rothstein, you know, the, the author, right, of the original op-ed, as well right. as the author of The Call of Laws, he straight up admits, I'm going to read from the article, Rothstein points out that in San Mateo, no grants have been provided for home purchases. And I quote, it is unlikely that the program could ever be adequate to give black families access to neighborhoods that the American Trust Company helped create as whites only. Facing up to this is what addressing the full spectrum housing issue involves. He didn't mention it, but the reason is because, again, these homes are 1.4 million, right? So even if you were to say, listen, uh, like, are we talking about cash purchases, right? Because if I'm a low-income family, how am I affording the mortgage on this house, right? So what are we talking about? Are we talking about helping wealthy black families get into these homes like can't they already like are they still racist no it's pretty clear right san mateo's california you know it's the bay area i I, i'd be shocked if they found the type of stuff in san mateo as they as newsday found in long island right be shocked maybe it happens those things we can address but this idea of we're going to take care of this financially just i mean i guess which then brings it back to kind of what we talked about the first time I was in the program, right? Like we do have to do something about this inequality. And as I mentioned, you know, I personally don't know that we actually have enormous amounts of systemic racism in this country, except in real estate. I think we still have systemic racism in real estate, which then leads to every other sort of things that we think about as systemic racism, right? on all the things that you just mentioned, like generations of wealth gain that were just not available. Um, right. You know, uh, the culture of these sort of, you know, uh, marginalized areas and the economic opportunities that are available in those areas. Like, I, I get all of that. And the fact is, we're still maintaining that. So, you know, I mean, we went to this, you know, this huge depth last time. But fact is, unless we're willing to tackle zoning and school districts, like even these cash reparations, I don't, I don't know how they help, right? It doesn't really do anything, right? And I don't so, know that we are ready as a country, as a society to tackle zoning and school districts. 
But so go go after that school district thing for a bit. I mean, what do you what do you mean by addressing school districts? I mean, I think that from my perspective, uh, you know, it's the one of the top three. NER's done study after study, and yeah. you know, top three things that the buyers are not willing to negotiate on. Um, they see that as you know, my my clients who are you know young with kids, yep. middle aged with kids, old with no kids, they all recognize that school district matters with respect to home valuation and resale. Of course. So, and, and, and let me also interject, though, but it's not just about home value. It's also about where your child will be in 30 years. The number one factor is where they grew up. It's right. it's the neighborhood that surrounds them in large part because the school district of to which those kids are assigned. I mean, that's that's the future. Right. I don't, so, I, you know, so I'll, I'll start off by saying I don't know. if I haven't seen that research. The number one factor is where the kids grew up. I, I've always thought the number one factor is whether the kid had two parents in the house. But right after that might be where you grew up for exactly the reason right. you So, Jim, I mean, <clears throat> I think that's exactly the issue, right? And, you know, you guys have read my blog post about this, right, where yeah. the school districts are really arbitrary. My brother was forced to transfer from a really great school to a really crappy school in suburban Long Island because of an arbitrary school district line that placed him 300 feet, right, from where right. one – Yeah, so th- there's all of that. So from my standpoint, I think it is – the school districts are created, right, uh, originally, and I think you can prove this, to keep black kids out of white suburban areas, right? I mean, it's, it's part of that whole, you know, segregation. It's part of that whole legacy we have as a country. Okay, now we know that. What do we do about that? Same thing with zoning laws. They were created to keep black people out. What do we do about that? So racial covenants, we've already said these are no longer valid, right? Like, you know, you still have deeds like today, that have these racial covenants in them, but no court anywhere has ever said, oh, that's valid. No, they're like, no, right. this is invalid. This is racist. Like, no, we're not doing that. We know that zoning laws were created for the same purpose to keep blacks out of white neighborhoods, right? But we're keeping zoning. We know that school districts were created largely to keep black kids out of white schools. We're keeping that. So that's the point at which I'd say, okay, why aren't we getting rid of those? And we can get rid of those very easily, Jim, right? All you have to do is just really implement school voucher programs across the country. So a black family, right, that can't afford to buy a $800,000 house in a top-rated school district can go buy, you know, a $150,000 house halfway across town. And as long as they're willing, you know, to arrange for transportation, their kid can go to the school of the $800,000 house. You know and I know, right, that that would be opposed by every single homeowner in the $800,000 house school district, right? Because what's the value of, of this house if anybody from around the city or wherever can attend that school? I don't know if you've heard the podcast, but the, the team that did Serial a couple of years ago. Um, nice, podcast. nice white family or nice white parents. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Nice, nice white parents. Like yeah. <laughs> Um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes because I'm I'm three episodes into that. I think I just started it. Yeah, and it's it is it is a fascinating and heart wrenching story about how schools were impacted when you know good intending families uh-huh. sort of did that. They created opportunity for you know mixed you know multi races to come together in one school and yeah. how that changed the dynamics of, of the school and the school system. Yeah. Um. So I don't. You know, I don't know, Rob. I mean, I think that the 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 naive and the the empathetic and the human part of me would like to think that if you were to do that, then everybody everybody would be okay with it. But 
I also recognize that humans are kind of horrible sometimes and very selfish by nature. And I think that there would be, there would be pushback to that. So, I mean, where, where does that, where does that shift come from? I mean, it's, it, does it come from the parents, from the God forbid politicians? Is it top down, you know, bottom up? I mean, what, what does that shift look like to erase yeah. uh, districts? I mean, I wrote a post about this. I think my, my theory at this point is that this is going to come from technology and I think it's going to come from online, online education. Right. Because of COVID, like now we have schools that aren't open, you know, they're quote open, but they're all virtual. Right. You know, and I think that changes the game. If this becomes a new normal and your child could take virtual classes, you know, then why is your child limited to taking virtual classes from the school, you know, half a mile down the road, right? When he could just as easily take a virtual class from a teacher five miles down the road, Right. And at that point, the school district thing then really comes down to how we fund the schools, right? And we fund schools through local property taxes right now in just about everywhere I can think of in the United States. Mm -hmm. And there have been proposals. You know, I remember in Houston, there were some proposals to do it in a different way, like maybe a state levy. Do you know what I mean? And then allocate funds that way. And I got to tell you, all those nice white families went apeshit. They said, absolutely not. Well, and, and, and frankly, that is also, though, where you get the next bend, which is you go from school choice to being mm-hmm. school voucher. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you go voucher that's usable in a private school setting, yeah. now you have private schools who say, oh, wow, everybody's got a $10,000 voucher. We can bump it by ten grand and keep the exact exclusivity that we always had and make it even and, – and collect an even greater part of our wealth. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's possible. But on the flip side, the the nice thing is they don't have some sort of monopoly. Right. So there's bound to be competition. You know, different schools going to offer different things. And, like, you know, I've, I've been saying this more and more in recent weeks. And I don't know why it had to do with real estate. But I've always said, look, there's room for Walmart and for Neiman Marcus. Right. Some parents are going to want the Walmart. Some parents are going to want the Neiman Marcus. Like, let, let that be their decision. So I'm I'm personally for that. I just don't think it's going to happen politically. Right. Well, I, mean, I don't t- think it happens top down. No, but I think one thing: uh, Neiman Marcus filed for bankruptcy in May, so well, there might not true. be <laughs> <laughs> wrong. Exactly. Yeah, there may not be a room <laughs> for Neiman Mercedes. Other people yeah. want, um, you know. <laughs> but no. It, it was, I was talking to, to an administrator at a local Charlottesville school the other day, and she was talking about how you know, in this world of online, they brought their ki- their kids back, you know, for. 15, 20 minutes recently or, yeah. you know, whatever during yeah. the, during the shutdown. And I think she, and she and the kids were both struck by the, the fact that the kids really missed that place. Mm-hmm. They missed the sense of place. So I think that there's a value, there's an enormous value in having that shared space and place for the community. And I, I think that that's not something that you can necessarily replicate in the online co- you know, COVID world we're existing in now. So I think that you're seeing that the 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 lack of touch, if you will, the lack of belonging, is manifesting itself both in schools and and in frankly the professional world. So I think that there there has to be a balance of technology is a filler, but also you you need that 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 home place home home base, if you will. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that that's something that there there could be a hybrid model. Let me clarify. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that we should go to virtual only. <laughs> like, right. No, I agree I, with you. Like 
place is important. Like I miss seeing all seeing you guys like in person right. and having a drink. Like and here we yeah. are, you know, over Zoom, right? So I get that. All I'm suggesting, I was just answering what could change this. I don't see politics changing it. Right. I just don't. Uh, therefore, it has to be something outside of politics. And the only thing I could think of is the social upheaval and change we're having right now. <clears throat> and it's the application of technology to the unique COVID situation. That's all I'm saying. Right. So I could see it coming from bottom up because at the same time, you're right. I mean, everything you said is true about place and the kids miss it. At the same time, man, we're starting to see stories about these pods that are popping up in very right. wealthy neighborhoods. We're yeah. starting mm-hmm. to see these things like, you know, private uh, neighborhood initiatives, you know, things like that. So I'm like, it's going to happen. Right. And there does come a point where, you know, middle class families or even less wealthy, families, like lower income families, they want the same thing for their kids that the rich people want. Right. I mean, I, I just believe that. I don't think low income families are somehow like screw the kids. Like, no, everybody no. loves no. their kids. So if they're like, if, if the richy riches, you know, across town are doing these neighborhood pods and doing that, why can't we? And the availability of technology sort of makes that possible, right? So that's what I'm saying. I think it ends up being more bottom bottoms up. Um, the issue then at that point is, and this is where the political, the politics is going to come in, is where the way that we do school funding and these local school districts are going to become more and more unsustainable politically because people are not going to want to pay those taxes, right, support a small school that, you know, like it's, it just changes the whole dynamic there. That's all I'm saying, right? So, yeah, yeah I agree. But, but you're, bring, you're bringing up a bigger question of the entire how do we fund education system in America. I mean, the, but, you know, getting back to where you were on the school choice question, yeah. look, there are ways that we can impact school choice. There are multiple ways we can impact school choice. Number one, you can do exactly what you suggest, which is everybody within a specific, you know, municipality can select the school of their choice. And, and it's a lottery based on who wants to take their kid to which school, right? That may be one extreme. But the other piece is right now we have done such an extraordinary job over the last 60 years of zoning wealthy people into one area within a city and zoning low income, moderate income into another that, you know, people who are doing school districting really are forced into either crosstown busing or racial zoning because – the school is closest to this neighborhood and that school is closest to that neighborhood. Yep. So the, the way to adjust it then is, and Virginia had um, this proposed and it, it died off in committee uh, this year in the state legislature. Um, Oregon has gone through with it. I believe California, Jim, have they passed it that you can no longer have uh, single family zoning? I know mm-hmm. Oregon did it. Oregon no, did yet. it. Not I don't think California, Minneapolis did it. Minneapolis. Oh, yeah, yeah, so so localities have done it. Yeah, I mean, but you do that and immediately it, it introduces that if you wish to have accessory dwelling units on your property, you can add that. It allows for, um, you know, it allows for people within the private industry mm-hmm. to take it upon themselves to integrate neighborhoods, right? Yeah. And and when I say integration, I'm not speaking just to racial, but socioeconomic integration. Which is the more important thing, right? I mean, like and, and, with, and with it brings a lot of times a racial side, yes. Yeah, but, you know, there's a racial element. So you go out to Stockton, there's a giant, like, Filipino community out there that's, you know, they're not rich. Right. right? So it's not just like a black-white thing. You know, it's no. it's just socioeconomics, period. No, and, I, and that's kind of my point, right? So the thing that I'm opposed to and the thing that I do feel like maybe we as an industry could struggle with 
is getting rid of the anti-growth zoning and the related anti-growth environmental regulations that prevent this from happening. So, you know, I'm, look, I'm okay with zoning that's like industrial versus residential, right? Clearly, nobody wants a coal plant next to, you know, an apartment complex. You know, right, like, that's from the coal executive, yes. Yeah, I'm talking about the zoning that we're all familiar with, like minimum lot sizes and, you know, yeah. no multifamily and, you know, no ADUs, like that kind of crap. I'm like, mm-hmm. no, that's, that's bullshit. Well, I mean, I, you know, well, it is, and I think it goes to the whole the NIMBY conversation. I mean, I think that you know we, we've seen in, in every market we've been in across the country, you see this where you have a, a part of a town that the redevelopment comes in to be adjacent to it. Yeah, and the immediate response, broad brush, most often, is from people who live nearby saying you can't do that because it will change the character of our neighborhood. That's right. You know, and. And the undertone of that is all is often we don't want those kinds of people, and it's not a it's not a black white white no blue, it's gray, a whatever. Yeah, correct. I mean, there was yeah. one lo- one locally that I remember vividly. Someone said in, in writing, they said we don't want townhouses next to us because we don't want our kids playing with those kinds of people. Yeah, okay. In, okay. in so, writing with their name attached yeah. to it. So, I mean, but that's, that's my point. <clears throat> but I, I think that the the challenge is. And getting you know, super local is in, in every locality is that when these things come up, we need the you know, the yimbies, the yes in my backyard. Yep. We need the yimbies to come out as vocally, if not more so, as the yep. nimbies. That's right. right. So, and, I, and I hate putting the you know one versus the other, but that's where we are. Well, but that also looks you know, and, and we'll talk just about local stuff. And Rob, I know you don't know Charlottesville uh, no. City Council and Albemarle um, Board of Supervisors, but you know, I, mean, have, opinion, I freaking love it, man. But yeah, yeah but, but that's the oh, but that, you know that I and, think that dynamic is everywhere. It's not just yeah, City of Charlottesville or Albemarle County. Yeah. yeah. And and by the way, Rob, the the breakfast joint we took you to last when you came to Charlottesville has has shut down during the COVID, which is just such a complete disappointment. Hey, man. They're one of the sixty percent that's going to shut down. So uh, yeah. I know, I know, it's awful. We love, uh, we yeah. love that place. Our but the, Applebee's everywhere. <laughs> so you know, here we've got uh, we have we have real estate proffers system that uh, mm-hmm. requires that developers pay into a housing fund, um, mm-hmm. or or they can put you know uh, socioeconomic diversity within the housing offering. They can either do that through. Um, guaranteeing certain numbers of houses to low income. They can work with uh, some of our nonprofits to do that, but it has to be built into the neighborhood. Or they can simply just donate $10,000 per house to this housing fund that continues to allow for segregated neighborhoods. Um, And that is the choice that many developers have taken over the years. Of course. But we've got one of the largest developments uh, going on right now in the city of Charlottesville that the developers took the exact other tact. And they said, we're going to place eight lots for Habitat for Humanity into um, the first phase of construction mm-hmm. um, or second phase of construction. It was the first that went into the city. And I think, Jim, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's like probably 50 homes in that second phase total, 60 homes. Yep. Eight yep. of them, Eight of them were designated for Habitat for Humanity. Um, they've all been built out. They've all been sold. The partner families are in. Um, the average new home in that neighborhood is probably six to seven hundred thousand. Home prices have gone up to one point two million, and yet there are eight habitat homes. And in the next phase, there are going to be another batch um, of habitats placed. This is ta- you know this is an explanation of. And, and by the way, they also do allow accessory dwelling units in the neighborhood. There are several, um, and this is where you know homeowners can 
vote with their pocketbook and say, we want to buy a house in a neighborhood that has diversity. We mm-hmm. want to live in a place that has walkability. We want to live in a convenient location. And that shouldn't be exclusively a wealthy um, a wealthy right. And I mean, I think this is this is one of the solutions. It's when the private industry goes with with the population and says, this is something we're willing to buy into and we're willing to invest in, right? I mean, and that... And, to me, yeah. that seems like a natural extension. That's where this goes. Yeah, but let me let me ask you about that because, again, to your point, I don't know the the, the hyper local Charlottesville area. So, sure. eight lots out of how many? It was, I think there were fifty, roughly, probably, probably not 50 even 50. fifty. Yeah, about oh, fifty. Okay, why couldn't they instead of building eight lots, take the land required for those eight lots and build a four story multifamily? Um. The zoning would not allow four-story ah, construction in, in Bingo. <laughs> bingo. Um, right. In other words, you're right. The private industry is likely the, the best solution. But fact of the matter is the, zone, the racist zoning laws prevent that from happening. Because if you really want a diverse neighborhood, you know, okay, it's great. You have eight Habitat for Humanity. So eight low-income families can move into this neighborhood surrounded by a bunch of millionaires, which, yeah. by the way, as, as having been that kid – who was the poor kid in the neighborhood because my parents were pastors. So we had, you know, I ended up living in the parsonage with zero money and getting my clothes from Goodwill, hanging around a bunch of millionaires kids. It sucks. It absolutely blows. So having said that, a way better thing would have been to put up 300 units of low-income condos or apartments. But to your point, that's not allowed. That's not allowed. No, it's not allowed. And, and there's another part of the city about five or six or seven years ago that uh, a developer came downtown Charlottesville location. And he said, we want to build, I think it was 300 small yeah. units mm-hmm. and in they were downtown, yeah. it, it would have been, it would have been perfect. And the, the out, the, the people in the other apartment buildings nearby were particularly vocal in shutting it down because yeah. it would change the character of an urban dense downtown location. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep in mind, the people in these other apartments had only been living there three years themselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, they were just moved there as well. But, yeah. so, but and now it's an, and now it's going to be an office building. So, I mean, I think that it, it's it is politics, it is zoning, it is, but it's also I mean, the people who are vocal. Um, right. The politics of the people, and, and this goes to your point, Jim. If the Yimbies outnumber the Nimbies, then yeah, you'll have these things. So, let me take a different tack. Should realtor political action committees? Should they be ones pushing for yimbyism? I think so. I think so. And not, now, maybe not, right? Because you know, this maybe goes to what is the what, like? Why do, why does the realtor political action committee exist in the first place? Right. Right. Like, why why do realtors organize into the state, local, and national association of realtors? Right. Right. Because you could make the argument that the the role of the realtor organizations is to protect the realtor in which case no you can't go with this yimby thing right you, you can't because it's going to drop property values it, it just is right that, that's just math right it's economics um but if the idea is that the realtor parties exist for the benefit of like society as a whole then yeah of course you have to do that you know i think so i mean i i don't know so like nar just hired like a diversity vp and you know, they're making race and diversity and all this stuff like a really big thing. And I'm like, it's cool that you guys are doing that and good for you for taking that step. And everyone's right. like, you know, let's, let's take small steps. Let's get the wins we can. I get all of that, right? But we're still not going to tackle 
like what is clearly a racist policy that prevents the type of private initiatives that Keith was talking about, right? These anti-growth zoning, the density laws, all of that stuff. Yeah. Then what are we talking about, right? Well, you know, it's cool. We made some progress. So we're going to have more, more MLS and association executives who are not white. Okay, great. So- well, but but here's the thing, Rob. Let's let's jump to the the next step of this. And I know our time is we've already spent more time on this than we expected. But you know, which doesn't <laughs> surprise happen when I talk to you guys. <laughs> it, it doesn't surprise me or Jim in the slightest. And and you know, that's that's why I love the fact that I have a 1.5 times speed on Overcast when I, <laughs> I listen to pods. But you know, the um, out of Washington, we got a tweet saying, "Hey, suburban housewives are going to love me forever because I'm going to do right. away with with." integrated neighborhoods, basically, as the the president's tweet said. And my question then is, you know, how can RPAC, how can the National Association of Realtors, if they are going to even remotely pay lip service to fair housing and act like this is something that's important to our association, Mm -hmm. how can RPAC not absolutely condemn those those actions those words and and that process how do you how can you act like the fair housing matters if we're going to support that type of a policy and those types of of executive actions you know to say that we what was the word that they used were it wasn't disappointed jim it was um was it disappointed? I, I, I might have been. It, it was. Uh, I, I thought that was. You know, I saw. I saw more more vigorous and strong uh, opposition to what he said from local and state organizations than I did from NAR. Absolutely. And NAR, and NAR necessarily. Uh, you know they they have to play that play to have to play. Uh, God, I hate I hate saying both sides uh, of this. I mean, they they have to be in the position of maintaining the political voice so that when they have a need, the politician answers their phone. So, I, but I think that the, you know, the lo, I mean, our local association had a nice, uh, very strong statement against it. The state one did as well. Well, um, a statement against it. It was basically it, essentially saying that we vigorously disagree with yeah. what he said. We are for integrated neighborhoods. We're for yeah. humanity. Um, yeah. But it was said very, in a very, very uh, thoughtful but pointed way. So is the idea then – so let's just carry this to the next thing, right? Okay. So will the local – will your local realtor associations push for forced integration of neighborhoods? Forced integration now. Yeah, because that's kind of what – you know, so here's the thing. Like first of all – What is – what, what do you say? I mean right. I guess the, 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 the better Trump, we're, we're going to get into like bizarre territory because a man is freaking bizarre, right? Right. But one of the things – that I was curious about because, you know, obviously I'm on Facebook, people went, went apeshit. And I'm like, is he wrong? Right. And people read that as meaning, is he morally wrong? You know, of course it's morally wrong. I'm like, no, no, I'm talking politics. Like, because what he said was suburban housewives are going to vote for me because I'm preventing the forced integration of their, na- of their suburban neighborhoods. Right. I'm like, okay, you could say that's disgusting. You could say it's racist. And I could agree with everything that you said. All I'm curious about is, Will suburban housewives actually vote for him because they don't want their neighborhoods actually integrated? And this then goes right back to the NIMBY thing, right? You guys are in Charlottesville. It's a pretty liberal town because you have UVA right there. Right? I mean, if, 80, if 85% blue, yeah. So the issue is that, and this is what I think realtors and then the RPAC, local, state, federal, and national, y'all have to deal with is how many of your clients want Section 8 housing in their neighborhoods? 
Well, I mean, you know, and, and Keith, by the way, I don't mean like eight lots out of 50 of, you know, Habitat for Humanity. I'm talking Section 8 housing voucher. But you're well, first off, the, you know, in Virginia, we actually just passed a law that now it is a fair housing violation to look at source of funds when making a determination for rental. So, yeah, actually, Section 8 housing vouchers are now allowed in every single rental property in the state of Virginia okay. that is owned by somebody who owns more than four properties for rent. So okay. any any professional investor is now bound by Section 8. So Section 8, the, the question of housing voucher is no longer stigmatized to specific neighborhoods. It's no longer okay, – so They want rental units in their neighborhoods. Yeah, I, I – I mean, I can tell you that the, you know, there are more and more neighborhoods. There are plenty of neighborhoods being developed now, some of which do have short-term rental um, exclusions, right? You can't do Airbnbs in a lot of neighborhoods, but nobody's nobody's prohibiting people from buying properties and renting them. And the state law now prohibits you from making a determination on, on source of income. So I, yeah. I'll, no, I, Keith, I'll push back on that because, you know, to, to Ross's point about systemic racism in real estate – Purely from a rental perspective, yeah. Yes, there are restrictions. You go to, if you go to to go buy a, a condo. That's and, that's FHA finance. That's a financing question, though. It's a financing question, but there, but the, by by virtue of the of the lending laws, if you have a hundred units and X percent are renters, the the loan is going to be more more expensive if there's an X percent of renters in that development. But what I would say, what I would come back to that on, Jim, is that I think what you've just said entirely supports the Richard Rothstein argument that the federal government has been the hand that requires that integration not occur, right? This is what you're saying is that the FHA is still supporting segregation. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with what the actual capitalist pricing strategy is. Right? Oh, I mean, hold on, this is Keith, you're skipping over the most important part of this, though, right? <laughs> if the neighborhoods want more rentals in their neighborhood, right, yeah. all they have to do is go to city council and vote out the council members who are not willing to change the single-family zoning regs. We just talked about this, right? Eight lots out of fifty. Why not build a 300-unit multifamily? And my point is, if people really want low-income housing in their neighborhoods, all they have to do, right, is go to their council and say, "We want you to allow multifamily development in our neighborhood." And my and, question is, how many of your clients are willing to do that? You know what, Rob? And on, I'm going to go ahead and cut it on that and leave a cliffhanger <laughs> because we can We're have not this again in two weeks. Yeah, but, 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 if, if this podcast goes out to your your customer, your clients, it does. I, would, I would encourage them to contact Jim and Key and yes. say. I will show up at a rally to get rid of single-family zoning in my neighborhood. Uh, I, I think that that's, that's part of it. Though. That's is, yes, in my backyard, right there, right. I mean, I yes. think that we, we need to we need to see more people vocalize. And there was, and I will close on this. There was a development recently uh, in the urban ring of Albemarle County, and you know, I saw the the conversations online saying, "This is where this should happen. We need people to show up and speak in support of this development." Mm-hmm. Naturally. Uh, I'll make this up, you know, 50 people spoke in opposition and three were in support of it. <laughs> you know, so it, it's the people who, sh- the people who show up and voice their opinion are the ones who are going to drive the change. And Rob, can I just point out that Jim is the one who said, I'm going to cut this conversation off and then brought up another topic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and on that, you know, like seriously guys, we should just like a Joe Rogan style and go for four hours and, you know, and- oh. no, cause that's called uh that's, that's your, that's your podcast with Greg. <laughs> 
I wish we we try to cut it an hour, but I keep thinking yeah. like there's some of these issues in real estate are so complex and so multifaceted. Maybe it is worth one of these days. Maybe I'll host and I'll invite you guys, right? And just yeah. do four hours or however long it takes, you know, because we these are really complicated issues, and I feel like we're just still scratching the surface. We are, and I th- I think that the uh, uh, the one thing I will uh, I think that we do need we're at like 37 minutes yeah. now. Um, I think that the one of the, my big takeaways is the fact that uh, for our, for our listeners out there, uh, we have some systemic issues that are endemic in real estate, yep. and we have um, highly intelligent and passionate realtors out there who are frankly becoming more aware of the history of of how we got to where we are. Yep. And as we have this 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 awakening, if you will, to how we got to where we are, you're having more realtors and more non realtors looking to, to, to execute change on a local state and national level. Yep. And this is not something that's going to go away um, or get changed or fixed in the next two to five years, but something that uh, we're looking at. We, we got to this from a gener- generational perspective and it's going to take generations to, to address it. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to close. So with one other thing we've, you know, Rob, this is your second time you've been on, on this round and I, I am sure that in the future we'll have you back again. Um, but I do want to give you a big, I do want to give you a big thank you. But also, you know, we've got different listener bases, and and um, if anybody's enjoyed this conversation, let me just say that the style of this conversation fits very much in line with Rob's other podcast, which is Industry Relations that he does with uh, Greg Robertson of of WNR, um, and in a fabulous podcast. So, Rob, thank you for for the time. Um, thank you for the thoughtfulness and we'll look forward to doing this again. And, and hopefully, hopefully we will be in person at some point within the next few months and year. And, uh, we'll get you in for like a, a larger nest conference. So you can actually talk awesome, directly man. to our people. It was a real pleasure guys. Always fun talking to y'all. Awesome. It is. Thanks Rob. Love it. Thanks Rob. Bye.